Welcome to Diversity Dialogues, a production of the New York State Unified Court System and its Office of Diversity and Inclusion. I'm John Carr. For National Native American Heritage Month, we are proud to feature a truly historic figure, the Honorable Mark Montour. Judge Montour, who was recently promoted to the Appellate Division 4th Department, is the first Native American in New York State history ever elevated to any of the four Appellate Division Departments. A member of the St. Regis Mohawk Indian Nation, Judge Montour was the first Native American ever elected to a state-level judicial position. He was elected to Supreme Court in 2013 and has served as Acting Administrative Judge for the 8th Judicial District and Supervising Judge for the Genesee and Wyoming County Town and Village Courts. Judge Montour also tours the New York State Tribal Courts Committee, serves as state facilitator for the New York Federal, State, and Tribal Courts and Indian Nations Justice Forum, and is a member of the Advisory Committee on Judicial Ethics. He is a graduate of the University of Buffalo School of Law and Canisius College. Judge, thank you for joining us. Uh, please tell us where you grew up and what your parents did. Well, I grew up in, uh, in Buffalo. I was born in Buffalo. I grew up in Tonawanda, New York. Um, my father was a uh, maintenance foreman for the uh, Chevrolet Ford plant. And my mother was a nurse, registered nurse. And she gave up nursing probably when I was young because uh, we had uh, seven children and her responsibilities were dedicated more towards uh, rearing us, you know, rather than uh, exercising her nursing responsibilities. Now, the name Montour is uh, pretty famous in, in Mohawk lore and, and in the Iroquois Confederacy. Tell me about your roots and how important that was growing up and how that may have shaped you as a person. Well, uh, with respect to growing up, uh, I'd, I'd like to point out my dad... Um, as I mentioned, was working at the Chevrolet Ford plant. He was a maintenance foreman, so he was involved with all the uh, the furnaces that were utilized in, in manufacturing parts for the automobile industry. And uh, in doing that, uh, he was required to uh, oversee restructuring of furnaces. And these furnaces were all made with asbestos. And back then, no one really had an idea on the dangers of asbestos, or if they did, they never really publicized them. And that ultimately was led, led, led to his, his death in uh, 2020. So with respect to growing up with my heritage, though, my dad was born in 1925. And um, both my grandparents are, are Mohawk, full Mohawk, uh, as my dad is. I'm one half. Um, during that time frame, uh, the, the boarding schools, the residential boarding schools were in play. And uh, I, I never had a chance to ask my dad about this. We never really discussed it. I regret not having been able to discuss this with him. But you know, we, we, we did not grow up with a, with a Native heritage. And I think a lot of it has to do with, and I have to surmise, with the fact that the boarding schools were still popular uh, when, when my dad was born. And when we were born, uh, the boarding schools uh, existed from the 1850s to the 19, uh, 17, 1970s. Wow. And, and you know, children were taken from their, their, their households, their families, forced into these schools. 
and uh, they were not allowed to discuss their uh, culture. They were not allowed to use their language or practice their religion. So I'm surmising that a lot of it, that was the basis for, for us not growing up with, with our heritage. So I didn't really stress my heritage till probably later in life, but um, it has had a significance uh, in, in my upbringing and my children's upbringing now. I understand there was a time when it may have been quite dis disadvantageous to to highlight your background. Right. Right. Now, um, you say you, you reconnected or connected with, with your background as you got a little older. And um, so w what is your relationship? How, how did you develop a, a relationship with the Saint, with the Saint Regis? And, and what is the relationship do you have with them now and they, they have with your family? Well, uh, I have I have roots in, in both uh, Aquasasne is, is the official word for Saint Regis. Saint Regis is, is a French name, so the Aquasasne territory is commonly known as the Saint Regis territory. But I'm also a, a member, uh, a registered member of the Ganigehaga uh, Ganawagi Registry, which is uh, the Ganawagi territory is just south of uh, Montreal. So I, I'm registered as an on the Kanawagi territory and am uh, enrolled member in the Akwesasne or St. Regis uh, territories. My connection probably with, with both more so uh, really developed when I became a Supreme Court judge at that point in time is when I was appointed to the Tribal Courts Committee. We may want to discuss that later, but uh, there are nine na Native nations, recognized nations here in New York State I don't know if everyone's familiar with that. I bring it up with a lot of people, and they're not. And I, I thought there was just a Seneca. We live here in West Seneca, Western New York, but there are nine nations, you know, in the St. Regis or Mohawk tribe, or up and up with Sassani. Uh, I'm a enrolled member, so I do have a connection with them, uh, as far as I communicate with them quite regularly. Uh, there's various tribal court issues that we discuss on a, on a very regular basis. Uh, the St. Regis Mohawk tribe was very instrumental in supporting me for my appointment uh, to the fourth department which was recently done in september so, uh, so you, you mentioned the tribal courts committee um which i believe was established a couple decades ago by then chief judge judith k uh wh wh what exactly does it do well uh, again there, there are nine native nations here in uh, new york state two on long island and then the seven throughout um, what is deemed to be uh, the New York State, uh, what is recognized today as New York State. And there's various justice systems that, that each nation has, whether there are constitutional systems such as the Senecas or the St. Regis Mohawk tribe or the Oneidas. When I say constitutional, they have their own constitutions now. Uh, they have uh, elected officers. They have uh, elected uh, counselors. They have um, elected judges. For example, uh, here in Western New York, the Seneca Nation has uh, tribal uh, peacemaker court, have a court of appeals, and they have a Supreme Court. They also have a surrogate court as well. And dealing with uh, New York State uh, court systems, and we're dealing with federal court systems. So the idea behind the Tribal Courts Committee was to galvanize uh, these various state courts, state, federal, and tribal courts to develop uh, concrete steps to implement 
the mission of, of this of the state of the um, I'm sorry the tribal courts committee and there's various factors of, of the, uh, the mission that we have here with the tribal courts committee is to develop educational programs for judges and trial tribal chiefs and in Indian communities to exchange information among tribes and nations and agencies uh, to coordinate the integration of the ICWA training the Indian Child Welfare Act for child uh, care professionals attorneys judges and law guardians and to develop mechanisms for resolution of jurisdictional conflicts and interjurisdictional recognition of judgments and to enhance um, ICWA enforcement. Now developing mechanisms of resolution for jurisdictional conflicts you, gotta, you need to understand that that even though there's some uh, those constitutional um, constitutional courts systems that the Oneidas, St. Regis Mohawks and Senecas have there are other traditional, that being the Tuscarora, the Tanawana Senecas, or the Onondagas, and up until recently the Cayugas, which had a, a traditional form of, of, of resolution, um, solving res or re resolving um, conflicts, which would have been the tribal chiefs in conjunction with the clan mothers, a, a problem would come before them and they, they would resolve these, these issues. So. There's interplay between those traditional forms of government as well as uh, our state court jurisdictions, as well as the federal court jurisdiction. Now, most uh, the, the tribal nations do not have criminal jurisdictions, so those are generally held uh, predominantly in federal court, or if uh, there's, there's uh, jurisdiction given to the state courts, they also have the ability to uh, oversee those particular matters. Now, the fourth department where you sit probably includes more Native American settlements than the other three departments combined. I mean, you've got the Oneida and the Onondaga and the Cayuga and the Tuscarora and the four bands of the Senecas, the Tanawanda, Cataragas, Allegheny, and Oil Springs. What sort of legal issues arise or, or, or can arise um, with, that are unique to those various entities? Well, again, I indicated that there are uh, different forms of uh, dispute resolutions uh, amongst some of those ports that you just territories that you just mentioned. There's the traditional and there's the constitutional uh, forms of government. And the fourth department, um, you know, we, we really are geared toward uh, addressing matters that have been brought forth in those lower courts. So here it's uh, uh, brought forth in the state Supreme Court, the surrogate court, family courts. Right? So I hear issues about, about those. The issues which would be more related to uh, Native issues would be handled in those particular courts, whether it's a, a Indian Child Welfare Act uh, issue in, in, in family court, uh, whether it's a uh, matter involving um, a contract dispute in the Supreme Court, or if I give an example, when I was sitting as a Supreme Court justice, a trial judge, before my appointment here two months ago, um, I oversaw 25% of the integrated domestic violence cases in um, Erie and Niagara counties. And what I would attempt to do, you know, you're dealing with domestic violence and 
studies have shown that children who are reared in an abusive home are in danger of mimicking their parents' abusive tendencies. Therefore, uh, when I was sitting in, in uh, matters uh, involving uh, domestic violence, I'd emphasize to the parents that they must make every effort to um, break the chain of abusive behavior to insulate future generations. And what I endeavored to do, and if you stepped into my courtroom, 92 Franklin Street in Buffalo, New York, I have um, various artwork presented. There's a, the trial of red jackets is, is displayed in my courtroom. In my courtroom, there's also a, a Chippewa Indian Village court, uh, painting. There's a painting of the uh, Treaty of Greenville. And I had a, a portrait of uh, Red Jacket itself. So if you came into my courtroom, there was that Native American sense or flavor. And what I attempted to um, impress upon parents, where there's a, an abusive situation and where these children are, are, are witnesses to traumatic events, whether seeing or hearing a family member being threatened or beaten, it can shatter a young child's sense of safety and security. So, and with long-term consequences. So with that in mind, I tried to impress upon the, the parents a uh, philosophy of Native Americans or a principle. It's, it's called the seventh generation principle. And it's taught by Native Americans and it asserts that in every decision, be it a personal, governmental, corporate, uh, we must consider how it's gonna affect our descendants seven generations into the future. And to live by this principle, one would have to ask prior to any undertaking, how is it going to affect land, water, air, animals, birds, plants, and the future of our children, seven generations into the future? So I, again, I tried to impress on, on perpetrators that their actions have adverse effects on uh, generations going forward. So my, my theme was to, uh, to break that chain. So those were, those were efforts that we made uh, at, the, at the lower court, at the trial level which generally I'm not going to see uh, in my position now uh, sitting on a panel reviewing decisions by all reporters. Well, I think it's fascinating, though, that you were able to um, invoke the wisdom of your heritage to resolve a dispute or, or to address an issue with people who did not share that heritage. The whole, the whole seven-generation thing is fascinating. It's... And it really, in reality, and I was speaking to some law students the other day and indicated to them if, if government leaders had, uh, had a similar philosophy, you know, decades ago, generations ago, maybe we wouldn't be having these same problems that we're having now, experiencing uh, with climate change and the planet, how uh, Mother Earth is really suffering and has an inability to continue to uh, work benefit of all here who reside on this planet. Now, in uh, 1974, you would have been, I don't know, a sophomore or junior in high school, I guess, a contingent of the Mohawks, uh, led by Art Montour, who I understand is not a, a relation of yours, uh, descended from Canada and, and took possession of some 600 acres of the Adirondacks, claiming Aboriginal rights, and leading to a three-year armed standoff. Um, do you remember your thoughts at that time, or even were you even uh, cognizant that, that, that all that was going on? Well, again, I think, uh, as I indicated previously, uh, my upbringing really was not, uh, I wasn't exposed to my Native heritage uh, 
growing up and then as a junior in high school at that point in time, I, I really was not involved with that. But I do understand um, the, the mechanics behind that you know, now um, that apparently back in the early 1700s, uh, John Brandt, uh, who was a uh, chief, he sold uh, this acreage more than that, thousands of acres, to the state for a pittance of $1,500. And the U.S. government has a uh, trust relationship with uh, Native Americans uh, established in the Constitution. And um, there's what's called the Non-Intercourse Act, which states that states cannot um, purchase or enter into treaties with um, Native nations and attempt to take land unless it's ratified by uh, the federal, federal government, ratified by Congress and the Senate as far as approving a treaty. And this wasn't done. Obviously, it was just a sale from Chief Brandt to uh, the state of New York for $1,500. And so went. So basically, the Non-Intercourse Act was not followed. So there's Art Montour led it, led a contingent, which lasted for a period of three years, to um, bring attention to the fact that this, these lands were taken improperly, and in an attempt to uh, gain recognition and maybe have those returned. And recently, uh, there have been various uh, court decisions or efforts by uh, the state. Of New York to uh, return uh, Native lands to uh, Native nations. An example is the the Onondagas just received back a thousand acres uh, from the state of New York in Onondaga territory, and this is this is significant. It's the first time such a, a large acreage has been returned to a Native nation. And, and the idea is that the, the natives, the Onondagas, will take steward to this this property and exercise traditional uh, means of preserving uh, the property, bringing it back to uh, its, 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 its state of, 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 of nature. And um, it's very significant in that regard. Um, again, it's over a thousand acres that have been uh, returned to the Onondaga Nation. Uh, when you look at Onondaga Lake. Uh, it was a dead lake for the longest period of time. Uh, back in the 18, 19th century, early 19th century, industrial development, growing population, led to increases in uh, sewage and industrial discharges that took their toll on the toll on the water quality of Onondaga, Onondaga Lake. Swimming swimming was banned in 1940. Fishing was banned in, in 1970. You know, and it deals with industrial pollution, again, uh, wastewater pollution, pollution from um, ground runoff. And the lake was basically dead. And uh, recently, uh, there's been efforts to clean up the lake. They've had to dredge the bottom of the lake because it's, it's just, the soil is just so contaminated. And recently, uh, uh, in the last 10 years, the lake is, is, is showing uh, some resurgence coming back. And um, it's 
through the efforts of the state and uh, bringing bringing back the lake to uh, to its uh, uh, habitable for fish and wildlife. Another uh, recent decision was the uh, U.S. District Court in Akwesasne uh, affirmed the 1796 Boundary Treaty. Uh, there was this, there's been a dispute over the reservation boundary, and uh, again back to that Non-Intercourse Act. Um, in 1824 and 1825, New York State attempted to purchase approximately 2,000 acres of reservation land from the tribe without the presence of a federal commissioner and subsequently ratified and, a, and or a subsequently ratified a federal act. So therefore, it's, it's commonly known as the Hogan'sburg Triangle. So just, just recently in March of this year, the Federal District Court did recognize that treaty recognize that, that at acreage, the, the Hogan'sburg Triangle is uh, reservation land and uh, didn't indicate that it's been have to be returned yet, but it's a first step towards uh, achieving that result. Something I find fascinating and, and gratifying actually is that basically what, what we have here is a conquered minority with very, very little political clout. And the Native American voting bloc is basically non-existent. Yet the courts are entertaining their lawsuits, and as you mentioned, in several cases, ruling in their favor. That seems to say something good about our justice system. It's recognizing the atrocities that have existed historically. I think it's very difficult, and I, I, in my, in my position as the chairman of the Tribal Courts Committee, we have a, a responsibility of educating, uh, bringing knowledge to uh, various judges and courts that you're dealing with a separate sovereign nation. You're dealing with a nation that you need to recognize uh, has, is, is required to receive notice under, for example, ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, where the, 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 the nation could exercise jurisdiction over this particular uh, dispute involving uh, an Indian child. Uh, and I think it's important that um, that we continue to um, educate various judges and uh, court clerks and court staff. I see it a lot in family court where uh, a new judge is elected, and a new judge doesn't have any familiarity with with uh, ICWA. Uh, so it's necessary for us to um, go out, meet with the judge, meet with their staff. Uh, give them um, some education on ICWA uh, so that going forward uh, the act can be followed. What what made you to pursue, a, what inspired you to pursue a career in the law? Well, when I came out of high school, I had different ideas on, on, what, on what path my life was going to take. I stumbled upon a, uh, an elective constitutional law class when I was an undergrad. I uh, found it interesting. Uh, started to explore it a little bit more. Uh, I transferred on to, uh, to Kinesis from UB. I did take a, uh, another uh, criminal procedure course from uh, uh, an attorney instructor and ended up uh, going on to uh, taking my, my degree in political science, taking the LSAT, going to law school, 
Ultimately, that same professor from Canisius who taught the criminal procedure course hired me in my first job. Were there any uh, Native American role models for you in the law? Uh, it's hard to say. You know, again, when you're looking at a role model, um, you know, I, I happen to be the very first Native American ever to be elected to a state uh, judgeship position. So it's difficult to say there was a, a Native American role model, um, you know, when, when I was growing up. Uh, Ely, Ely, Ely Parker comes to mind as a, a Tonawanda Seneca who uh, was instrumental in uh, studying the law. He studied law uh, with a, a, a private firm down in the southern tier. Uh, he was uh, to a point where he would have been in a position to take the, uh, the bar exam. However, because of his race at that time, he was uh, prohibited taking the bar exam. So there are, there are efforts today to uh, posthumously have uh, Ely Parker uh, admitted to the New York bar. Do you say Eli so, Parker? Yes, Ely, Ely, E-L-I, Ely Parker, uh, admitted to the bar. Um, there are some roadblocks. He is a Tonawana Seneca. Once again, that's a traditional form of government. Uh, Ely Parker, um, again, studied law, but he also was, was a chief with the uh, Tonawana Senecas at a young age, and he left that position, gave up that position to, um, to you know, become a member of the United States Army, became befriended uh, U.S. Uh, Grant and uh, was present at the surrender of the, uh, of the Southern forces, Confederate forces. Uh, he copied the, the treaty or the, uh, the surrender agreement. So he was very instrumental. He was uh, close with U.S. Grant, Ulysses Grant. And oh. um, so there is some roadblocks uh, to his uh, getting that uh, posthumous to the what, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to your community to be the first Native American to serve on really the second highest court in the, in the entire state? It, it, it's it's a, it's a tremendous responsibility that I, I, I take on every day through my responsibilities as the, the chairman of the Tribal Courts Committee. We deal with issues affecting Native nations on a daily basis. And um, for example, Tribal Courts Committee now is uh, attempting to uh, have passage by uh, or signage by the governor, governor of the state, the uh, Indian just unmarked burial protection act. So and that's been um, by both houses, the Assembly and the Senate, unanimously. It's presented to the governor right now, and uh, there's been some uh, delay in, in having that signed. Uh, there's some um, reluctance on some government agencies to, to have it signed. And, and for everyone's information, 
there's only three states in the United States, one being New York, that does not have a similar act which protects unmarked burial sites. And if you look back in history, um, the Native Americans occupied what is uh, referred to as New York State Day uh, before um, discovery, parent discovery, parent discovery, I'll say it again because Natives are already here, so I don't know if you can discover something that where it's already occupied. But so natives, natives were buried, you know, throughout the state in unmarked graves. And uh, what, what is the reluctance? It's hard to say. They really haven't verbalized, you know, what, what their reluctance is. Development is taking place throughout New York State, and development digs up graves, and they would just basically put them in a pile, and and, and so the, these grave sites have been desecrated. And it's just not Native Americans; it's it's African Americans who have been buried. It's uh, Revolutionary War uh, soldiers who were buried in mass graves that were that were never uh, marked, and. Um, what happens, a uh, developer can come through, dig it up, and just toss it away. Hmm. And uh, there's, a, there's a second legislation we're working on is the treaty rights law. Uh, various treaties have uh, afforded Native Americans the ability to hunt, fish, gather, you know, on all their, their natural territories, which happen to be off-reservation. And uh, members are, are being ticketed. Uh, for either hunting or gathering out of season. And um, so this treaty rights legislation uh, just attempts to codify uh, those treaty rights that exist, uh, again, which are superior rights uh, throughout, throughout the nation. What do you wish that uh, non-Indigenous people better understood about Native Americans in general and, and the Mohawk tribe in particular? Our history. Our culture. You know, I, I, I've talked to many friends uh, unaware of, of the residential boarding school. When did this happen? How did this happen? Where did this happen? And they don't realize that you know the, the number of residential boarding schools that existed not only in the United States but in Canada as well, where young children you know were removed from their families you know and uh, forever. At times, you know, they, they died at these schools. You know, the, the, the living conditions were, were, were horrible. There were no medicines. There was no food. They were they were their, their culture was taken from them. Their hair was cut. They were clothed differently. They couldn't speak their language. They were given other names. They couldn't see their family members. How can this exist? People ask. People ask. Say to me. You know, so it, it's our history. It's our culture, and uh, we're still here. You know, people need to understand that. You know, and the unfortunate aspects of, of the uh, challenges to ICWA recently could have far-reaching effects on other uh, treaty rights or, or tribal land uh, rights or, or Indian law uh, protections. Uh, it could be just the, the tip of the iceberg. It's, it's still going on today, the taking of land, the taking of cultures, you know, the, the, the genocide, if you want, if you will, that has existed. 
that's one of the responsibilities that, that I have and we have to, to, to educate people to that and, and, and bring it out and let them know we're still here. Well, hopefully this podcast is the start of that and the start of at least educating our audience. And Judge, I, I want to thank you for your time and for what you're doing and and uh, and, and wish, wish you all the well and you all the best in your new position.